You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people, and that means that when we read it, we are hearing God speak to us. Our passage this morning is Psalm 113. I'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you to follow along in your own Bible, and the passage is also going to be on the screen. Hallelujah. Give praise, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be blessed both now and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord is exalted above all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap in order to seat them with nobles, with the nobles of his people. He gives the childless woman a household, making her the joyful mother of children. Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we ask that the Holy Spirit would certainly use this word, this psalm, that he breathed out and gave as a gift to the psalm writer who gave it as a gift to us. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would use it for your glory in our lives right now and uh, every day you give us breath. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, if you are selling your house, the real estate agent might tell you, we've got some people coming through. Um, You need to be gone for the next three hours tomorrow morning. And you know that the real real estate agent actually showed up because he will leave his calling card on the kitchen bench. And you'll see that later and you'll say, yep, somebody was here. Now, a friend of mine gave his mother access to his apartment And uh, he would always know when she had been there because the bachelor pad was sparkling clean. His mom kept cleaning up after her boy. A clean house was proof that his mother had been present. What is the proof that God is present in this world? What is God's calling card? In verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 113, God is exalted above the highest heaven, invisible to our eyes. How would we ever know that such a hidden, transcendent God even existed? Verses 7 through 9 of the psalm Answer the question. The invisible, exalted God has a distinct way of letting you know that he has been in your neighborhood. 
he leaves his calling card, and his calling card is this. If you see the poor raised from the dust, if you see the needy raised from the rubbish pile, if you see the formerly childless woman beaming joyfully, surrounded by children, you won't chalk it up to chance. You'll know unmistakably that God was there you will recognize his fingerprints. Psalm 113 wants every nation, every people group to worship God. And how is this worthy God different from all other gods that are out there? No other God but the biblical God, no other God reaches down this low with compassion No other God provides a family and a home for those who have none. This is the God that the church must show to the world, the exalted God who stoops down to exalt the needy. I wonder, is that the God that we actually communicate Or do we act as if God is a God, we worship him because he gives us a little bit of a boost. You know, he's the God who brightens my already decent existence. Is that the God your life preaches? The God that makes your life 15% better than it otherwise would have been. The God that Psalm 113 wants the whole world to worship, the God that Psalm 113 wants the whole world to know, is the God who meets us at our neediest, embraces us at our ugliest, and raises us up from the deadness of our sins to reign and rule at his side. Our lives will preach such a God when we know such a God. Now, as an Old Testament lecturer at the RTC, um, I get paid to read old poetry, which, if you think about it, is a pretty cool job, right? So before we look at what Psalm 113 teaches us about God and ourselves, let's read it as a poem. It doesn't rhyme so much, but in Hebrew poetry, we have something known as inclusio. All right, and inclusio is where the beginning of the poetic unit is sometimes exactly what you find at the end of the unit. And what is the inclusio in Psalm 113? It's pretty obvious. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Or praise Yah, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord at the beginning and the end. Now, the next thing to know about Hebrew poetry is that there is a lot of repetition. But it's not mindless repetition, it's meaningful. Uh, an idea is introduced. In this case, the idea is God is worthy to be praised. 
The idea of praising God is introduced. And then as you consider that idea from several perspectives, you gain a deeper appreciation line by line, step by step. So verse 1 begins with hallelujah, praise the Lord. That is the theme, praising God, making much of God. And the next line builds step by step on that theme. Give praise, servants of the Lord. So the additional idea now is servants. Who should be praising Yah? His servants. Well, who are his servants? Abraham was known in scripture as a servant of God. So was Job, the greatest man in the East. The Lord referred to Job as my servant. David was often referred to as God's servant. Cyrus, emperor of Persia, would someday be referred to as God's servant. Each of us, when we finally get around to doing something good for God, we should not pat ourselves on the back for being a hero, but should simply know that we were doing our duty as God's servants. And Jesus, of course, is the servant, the suffering servant who took our place, was condemned and shamed and received all the wrath and just punishment against our sin in our place when he died on the cross. As suffering servant, he is the servant of the Lord. He did all of that to redeem people from every tribe and nation so that we could all be reunited as God's holy people in order to do what? To praise, to worship God. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. Now, as the Hebrew poetry continues to repeat its main idea while adding little step-by-step details, the next line of the poem says, praise the name of the Lord. Now, what is so important about the Lord's name? When I was a kid, growing up in church, we sang a song, Jesus Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. You know, some people think that God's name is kind of magical that way. Repeat it, and power is released, right? But God doesn't give you his name so that you can do magic. He gives you his name so that you can pray to him so that you can be in a personal covenant relationship with him, so that you can know him. If I just said to you, hey, you, that wouldn't go over very well. You'd be like wondering, do I care? God cares. When Moses asked the Lord, if you send me back to Egypt and the people ask me which God is sending me to them and leading us out of bondage, uh, what name should I give them? Yahweh. I am that I am. I will always be who I am. I will always be independent of everything and all situations because I am. To praise the name of the great I am is to be filled with gratitude that God isn't merely an impersonal energy field 
surrounding each one of us, but that he is personal. He wants to be known, and he has made himself known. The great I am sent his only begotten son, Jesus, Yeshua, our Savior, to be Emmanuel, God with us. So you praise the name of the Lord who has given us access to him through prayer, prayer that is itself in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. The next line of the poem, Praise the Lord, urges us to praise the Lord from time into eternity. Let the name of the Lord be blessed both now and forever. Now, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, that is, blessed be thy name. So the Lord's Prayer begins with a similar concern to Psalm 113. May his name be hallowed. May it be blessed. May it be valued and honored. May it constantly be on our lips because we have come to know him and to love him. God's name deserves eternal praise because he is eternally relevant, eternally loving, eternally wise, eternally just, eternally worthy. Then in verse 3, this stair-step, line-by-line poem that's telling us that God's name deserves to be praised nonstop from now until etern- into eternity, that same step-by-step poem says God's name deserves to be praised by the entire planet, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. Verse 2 covers time. Verse 3 covers space. This psalm covers everything. True satisfaction and joy, true fulfillment is found in praising and worshiping the Lord. And what, what is worship, right? Worship is the posture of your life. To worship is to bow down and kneel. To worship is to stand up and sing. It is the posture of your life. It is to delight in the attributes of God, to glory in the salvation he has provided in history. Worship is giving everything I am and have to the creator. It is a whole person, body and soul response to the grace of God. Giving everything I am to God, using every hour of the day to bring glory to him in my work, in my rest, in my plans, my finances, my priorities, even my thoughts. So worship or praise is a whole body and soul response to the gospel. And though it continues throughout the week for each of us individually, it begins at the beginning of the week corporately as the gathered people of God worshiping the Lord. So that was a bit, that was just a little bit of a poetry lesson for the day. Hebrew poetry 
uses things like inclusio and meaningful repetition to help us meditate on the wonder of who God is. But this was really supposed to be a mission sermon, not a poetry lesson, right? So what does praising the Lord's name have to do with mission? Now, the first three verses of this psalm give us the ultimate goal of our mission, that the name of the Lord would be praised everywhere forever. Every ethnic group, every village, every demographic is to trust Jesus, praise the Father, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The desire of Psalm 113 is the call of the church that from sunrise to sunset, all would worship the living God. We preach the gospel. We feed the hungry. We love the traumatized so that the reunited world would worship Yahweh. Oh, wait a minute. We love people so that? So that they will become worshipers of God? Can you call it love if you have an agenda? A so that agenda? Yes, you can. (laughs) Because true love always wants the object of love to become what it was designed to be. Much of the world dislikes the Christian mission because the world will not readily admit that we were designed by someone. The world believes that love has no agenda, that the most genuine love is a random, directionless love. I won't try to change you. I just love you. That is the voice of romanticism. If nothing has fallen, nothing needs to be changed. Redemption is unnecessary. If humanity is not depraved, it might make sense to say, stay sweet, never change, I love you with no agenda. But if you fall in love with a real person, someone who is trapped in sin and misery, and you know that there actually is a way out, then love will have an agenda. Come. Come become a worshiper of the triune God with me. It's an agenda. The world has its own soul-crushing set of agendas, its own discipleship program. It pretends to help me become what I want to be, while all the time forcing me into its mold. Worship this lifestyle. Submit to this new creed. Spend your national resources on the mirage of 100% guaranteed security so that our government will promise us We're never going to let anything bad happen to anyone. Corporations have their agenda. They will use the data I provide 
to shape me into the customer they want me to become. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when he set up that larger-than-life golden statue that looked a bit like himself? And he hired all the starving artists and musicians to play the music so that as soon as the music played, like Pavlov's dog, the empire would start to salivate and grovel and worship the image that he had set up. From the rising of the sun to the place it set, the name of Nebuchadnezzar would be praised, right? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego They were not having it. They would not worship the gold because they were already worshiping the God of Psalm 113. Nebuchadnezzar threatened them with death if they would not worship him. Jesus comes to people trapped in death and he recreates us as worshipers of his father so that we can go from death into life. Verses one through three give you the goal of mission, that the whole world would worship God. Verses five and six give you the source of mission. Mission doesn't come from within you. Mission comes from the transcendent God. What is the source of any love, any patience, any wisdom that any of us might offer to others? Does love just kind of bubble up from within you? You know, everyone in the small Northern California town where I grew up, everyone drank water that came out of a well in their backyard, and that well water was brought to the surface, to the plumbing system, by a pump. Now, we all dreamed of having an artesian well where the water would just naturally come up from underground pressure without the need for a pump. That would be the well to have. I once visited the headwaters of the Metolius River in Oregon where you come to this pool of water on a trail in the forest and this water is just coming straight up from the ground from no discernible source. It's, it's a hidden source. It's just coming straight up. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Is that the way our mission happens? That it just wells up from within us, just naturally like we are all artesian wells? Or, as Psalm 113 implies, does our mission find its source, not deep in the ground, but high above the highest heaven? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells you the source of your mission when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice the so that, how the mission of the church has an agenda to create worshipers. Shine your light so that they will worship. But also notice the implied source. The hidden source of all of your good works is your Father who is in heaven. If he were not the source, it would 
not make sense for people to praise your father when you do something. But when you do something, they're to praise your father because he is the source. Every good and perfect gift comes down from your father in heaven. Psalm 113 reveals to us the source of mission, the transcendent God who is exalted high above every Nebuchadnezzar, every billionaire, every pop star. And one pop star who used to be a rugby player before he became pretty successful singing rock and roll was Tal Bachman, the Canadian singer. He reached the top of the charts with a song about a woman. Big surprise there. She's so high, high above me. She's so lovely. She's so high, like Cleopatra or Joan of Arc or Aphrodite. So high above me. Now, if you remember that song, which was first sung before most of you were born, because I am so out of it in terms of pop culture, but if you remember that song, you remember that in the presence of this woman, Tal Bachman came to know who he was and where he belonged. That's what he says in the song. Truth is, we discover where we belong when we come to know the God who is so high above us. You finally know how you fit in, how everything fits in when you gain an understanding of the Lord's glory his stunning beauty, his weightiness, his significance. He is so high above us, higher than the galaxies. He is totally beyond our comprehension. Who is like him? Is there any God like this God? Aphrodite and any man-made deity is exactly what Freud said. They are projections of ourselves, but Yahweh is no projection. The great I am, we are in his image, he is not in ours. Verse six says that he stoops down to look at us, but you know when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God was not just stooping down, he was coming down. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, God wasn't just stooping down to look. He was coming down to empower his people. He is the source of our mission. His worship is the goal of our mission. His transcendent greatness is the source of our mission. Thirdly, God's redemptive love reveals the shape of our mission. Verses 7 through 9 tells us that the Lord God raises up the poor and equips them to rule and reign with the nobles, that he welcomes into his family those who have no family. Is our mission primarily about words or about deeds? Well, it is primarily words, backed up by deeds. The church will always talk about Jesus and will use very specific language about him because he's a very specific person who did a specific thing. So the, the church will always talk about Jesus 
and it will always love the world like Jesus loved the world and will reach out to the needy in his name. Now, have you noticed something about Jesus? He can't seem to answer a question with a straight answer, right? They ask him a question, he often asks a question back. One day he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? They asked him to name a command, one command. And what does he do? He circles two answers. Man. He was to name just one command. Now, he did give the right answer. He says, okay, you want the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, you know, so so he sneaks a second one in there. He says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why did he do that? Why did he give them two commands when they asked for one? Well, because he disagreed with the question, for one thing. Because the moral law of God is a unified whole. You ought not to be carving it up into pieces. That's one thing. But also, because you cannot love God, John tells us in 1 John, and hate your brother. The two don't go together. It's all of a piece together. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. If your neighbor is hungry, feed him. If he's naked, clothe him. What kind of a person asks Jesus, which commandment is the greatest? What kind of a person asks the church whether mission is about evangelism or social justice? Someone who does not yet understand either one, perhaps. Of course, it's about both. If the church is not actively telling people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then we have lost our voice. If the church is not actively serving as instruments in the hands of God, lifting the needy from the trash heap, caring for lonely people, if we aren't doing that, then we have lost our way. Psalm 113 gives us the shape of God's mission on this earth. And it just so happens to be shaped like the letter J for Jesus, right? Okay. So swooping down from the heights of above heaven, coming down, down, down to the lowest prison cell, to the filthiest rubbish bin, swooping down into death into burial, and then rising up from the grave, up from poverty, up from confusion, up from madness, up from addiction, into real life, eternal life, where we are seated at the table, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That is the shape of the mission of the church, to go down, down, down with Christ, and to go up, 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 raised by him, Now, the rich need the gospel every bit as much as the poor do. And the rich are, frankly, more at risk of being eternally lost. That is what Jesus said. Why is it 
that some of the wealthiest nations on the earth today have negative birth rates, not able to replace their population. What is it about the peculiar idolatry of our time that we are producing an entire generation of childless women who have no children at the table? The church is accused of being patriarchal, of objectifying women, thinking of them as breeders. What, is a woman merely a uterus? Is is that why Psalm 113 ends the way that it does? No. David, who wrote most of the Psalms, do you know who David's great-great-grandma was? Naomi a widow whose children had all died, the joyless mother of no one anymore until her redeemer showed up. Do you know who David's great-grandmother was? She was an immigrant, childless widow named Ruth, a day laborer not even earning minimum wage until her redeemer raised her up. This Psalm 113 ends by speaking of people who were just like David's ancestors. By speaking about any of us, truth be told, that we are all quite poor and needy and filthy and lonely and in need of a redeemer. While David waited years and years to finally become king of Israel, the band of brothers which the Lord sent him, who were these mighty warriors who joined David in the wilderness? Well, 1 Samuel describes these men as being marginalized, deep in debt, cast off from society, bitter in soul. They were a bunch of losers that the Lord sent David. They were a bunch of needy, cast off on the trash heap kind of people, and yet they became David's mighty men. They were raised up to rule and reign at his side in his coming kingdom. The poor man you see today will, by God's grace, judge angels in the coming kingdom. The loser woman whom you interact with today will be one of the happiest homeowners in the new heavens and the new earth. The shape of our mission is the shape of Jesus's life. He who humbled himself to the lowest place, even death on the cross, before being exalted to the highest place. He is coming again. And when Jesus returns, Psalm 113 will be fulfilled because on that day, from the rising of the sun, to the place where it sets. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that just like you took the dust of the earth and formed Adam, that you would take us in our uh, very unpromising condition and would form and shape us into living, breathing, 
worshipers and servants of you. And Lord, would you be gracious to us and merciful to us that we could stand on that day before you and uh, be there with many others that you allowed us to bring with us. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.